This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So I'm reading from the first 20 verses of uh, the second chapter of Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So this is Nehemiah writing and telling. I had not been sad in the king's presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive into Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up by the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, nor the priests, nor nobles, officials, or any others who would be doing the work. But then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, 
and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Would you show the first JPEG? So just a little bit of a visual imagery of what we just looked at. I've been looking up there. There's nothing up there. I'm like, where is he? Let me be nice to these guys. I got I to gotta do another service with them. The, uh... So just an image. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Access to the king, trusted by the king. Uh, just found this on Google image search. Hope I'm not violating any copyrights. We're not selling this. So next slide. So just an image, so you'd heard that he, he went out to Jerusalem, and he went at night, and he didn't tell anybody what he was doing. He just kind of examined the walls by himself. Next image. So here's, um, can't read it so well, but in the lower left part at the angle is the valley gate. So he describes moving back and forth really along the lower part of the wall is where he moves, and there are a few, the fountain gates over there, the dung gates right in here. But so he just describes going along a section of the wall at night to see what the condition was. So thanks. Well, I'm glad to be here. I was here in the fall, and uh, it's exciting what you have chosen to do as a church in thinking about people and thinking about people the way God sees them and what your role is in that through the Transformation Hub. Um, I love Nehemiah. This, what's, what's very interesting about this book, and you can pick this up if you actually read it through all the way at one time. I, I, sometimes I do that. I, I have this Bible on tape type of thing. It's called the Bible Experience. So a lot of times when I'm doing something, sometimes I'm driving long distances or um, doing dishes, I'll just put on... It takes me a while to do the dishes. I'll be like... But uh, I'll listen, and I like to, I love listening to, you know, the Gospel of Mark, Hebrews. Um, you pick up certain details. You know, you pick up details when you do a study of a verse and dive deep into the historical language and context. You pick up a lot when you look at the whole of a scripture. I mean, even in the New Testament epistles, those are written as letters, and often for the churches that were hearing what was written in those letters, they would hear them in one sitting. So there's a certain context. When you pick up, when you go through Nehemiah, it appears, and it appears to me, it's a report by a manager who's reporting on the project, on what they did. The sequence of the stories, the details, how Nehemiah frames sections of the book, it all looks like, you know, I'm reporting back on what happened. This is how we got the project started. Here's phase two. We did this. Here's a problem we ran into. Here's how we dealt with the problem. And it just kind of moves through that way. So he's giving detail about how they started up. What you're thinking about is 
with the Transformation Hub is a bit of a different vision from what you're doing right now in the food pantry. It's helpful to think about it a little bit as a startup. If you've ever been in business and had a startup, there are certain sequences and ways that you approach that. Nehemiah, if you haven't done that, Nehemiah is about to show you. What does it take to actually get something going, lay a strong foundation? How do you put it together? How do you think about people involved? And how do you move forward? So, a few details I want to bring out. First, Nehemiah could have described the situation in Jerusalem in a number of different ways. I mean, he is brokenhearted in, in the first chapter of Nehemiah when he finds out that Jerusalem is in ruins. And the king, the king sees it. He's sad when he comes up there. He could have looked at it from sort of a, a pessimistic angle or been looking at how big the challenge was and saying, oh, man, we can't do this. I mean, you're so far away from the power and the center. There's risk and vulnerability out there. We're not in control. The wall is broken, so we can't defend ourselves out there. We don't have any resources or any money to rebuild this thing. Plus, we have a lot of enemies. You know, that's sort of like the glass is half empty. Okay, that point of view. He didn't have that view. He had a view that said, you know what? What do we have that we can work with? There are at least three main things that he looked at, and that's what we mean by assets. Now, nice definition of asset. You know, a lot of us know what that is. A lot of us don't really use a word like assets in our regular everyday life or when we're talking to our friends. So just as a brief definition, in the Pray, Study, Grow that's in your bulletin, on the front end, it describes something called asset-based community development, which is an approach by scholars out of Chicago, John McKnight and John Kretzman. Uh, and what asset-based community development is, it's looking at local assets, looking at tools, resources, things that you can use to do something with. I mean, that's like the most elemental definition. <laughs> things that you do stuff with, right? There's more sophisticated definitions than that. But the local assets, looking at the local assets as the primary building blocks of sustainable community development. So even looking at Jerusalem, you know, and saying, well, the, the walls are broken, but you got the material for walls. You, know, you can say, well, that's just being very positive, or that's the glass half full. It's actually a very legitimate view, because you could use the pieces of a broken wall to rebuild a wall. Uh, asset, so, again, reading from here, uh, building on the skills of local residents, the power of local associations, and the supportive functions of local institutions, asset-based community development draws upon existing community strengths to build stronger, more sustainable communities for the future. Now, that's, I mean, for Nehemiah and the others around them, you know, for him to come up and say, you know, we're going to rebuild this city and to have a positive outlook was a little weird for some of the people. Because they're like, this place is messed up. And ain't nothing going on, and you think you're going to come and do something. I mean, a lot of, there are people who have that point of view. Nehemiah doesn't have that, have that. He comes in thinking about what do they have that they can do something with. What things they have they can do something with. His first asset is God in heaven above. Now, as Christians... We think, you know, God is the center of everything. Christ is God. The Trinity. 
So, but there are times when we think about God in ways that where we either have categories already there. God's our Father, you know. Uh, and there's this other way of thinking. When you, to say that God is an asset, I didn't really hear that growing up. I don't really hear that a lot. But Nehemiah taps into this. The first asset that he's tapping into is God's promise. The entire foundation of this in, endeavor this project, the book of Nehemiah, starts in the first chapter, verses 8 and 9, where in Nehemiah's prayer, he goes back to a promise that God has made. This entire endeavor is built off of this promise. And it's important because later on, when people don't really trust Nehemiah or they don't really believe the work can happen, they go all the way back to what? They all go all the way back to a promise made by the eternal loving God. So the promise that he taps into in, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, remember the instruction, he's praying to God. Nehemiah is speaking to God. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And he's saying that, and he's like, you made a promise that if we went awry, you know, something bad would happen, and now we're living through the bad. But if we return to you and obey your commands, you'll bring us to this place. He says, that's what we're taking to the bank. That's what we're, what we're going to build this endeavor off of. It's weird to think that that's an asset? That's an asset. That is a thing, this promise that Nehemiah is now going to go. He's going to use this thing to do other stuff. So it's an asset. Another asset, he later appeals to God's love. In verse 10, in the same, in first chapter, he says, he's reminding God of God's love and commitment for the people, saying, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So now there's this other thing called the love of God. God has, God didn't just make a promise and he's faithful, he's going to promise to you. God is feeling it. God is involved in what's going on and has a heart to help the people. So now Nehemiah has these things. He has a promise. And he's going to hold God to that promise. And if we do these things, you said. And he knows God's heart. He says, you're involved. Those are the assets that they're working with from God. Now, what are Nehemiah's own assets? What does Nehemiah himself bring into the table? Well, as we saw in the first image, he's connected. He's very connected. He doesn't just know the, the king. The king knows him. They say that, by the way, about if you're looking for a job or your resume or whatever. It's not about who you know. It's who knows you. So they, and I'm going to give out some free job advice. They say that a project is the new resume. You know what happens to resume. I mean, maybe this is a word for somebody in the congregation. Resumes, you know, 10,000 resumes come in, and they even have machines that go through those things looking for keywords. It's terrible. But 
one of the best ways that companies are hiring right now is when somebody comes on for a short-term project, could be paid, could be volunteer, and they can just watch you work and see how you operate. So the project is the thing that you hope the resume can do. Word to the wise, whoever uh, needed to hear that. But so, because in the project, they get to know you. It's not just that you know the company, the company now knows you. The king knows Nehemiah. Nehemiah is trusted. He's the king's cupbearer. I mean, the king trusts the guy because the guy's putting his life on the line for the king. That's an asset because Nehemiah is going to take that trust and do something else with it. Nehemiah has access. Now, the king might know Nehemiah. Maybe he knew Nehemiah five or ten years ago, but now Nehemiah is not involved in the administration and can't get the ear of the king. You know, that's a scenario. But Nehemiah is still working for the king, sees the guy every day, and has access. Access is a big deal. You know it when, when you don't have access. Who's our St. Louis guy from the first service? Matt Carpenter. If you don't have access to Matt Carpenter and you find out somebody in the church is hanging out with Matt Carpenter, we're going to struggle with the sin of envy. <laughs> we're going to be tempted because we wish we had access to Matt Carpenter. So you, you really feel that access is an asset when you don't have it. But Nehemiah has access. It's an asset. Nehemiah has faith. Again, you got to, sometimes if it's hard to understand things, just imagine the absence of it. If Nehemiah didn't have faith in God's promises and a little bit of faith that the king wouldn't cut his head off or, you know, violating some court, you know, policy, he wouldn't have taken the steps that were required because he was going to have to take a step of action to move things forward. He has faith. He hears God promise, God's promises. He knows what God had done for the Israelites, as he described with Moses. He believes it, and then he takes and does that. With that faith, he moves forward. And then as you go through the, when you read through the entire book of Nehemiah, yes, when you listen to the whole thing all the way through, you will see that there are junctures in the story where he has to lean back on his faith because they've run into a new problem that no one anticipated. So his faith is an asset. He has planning skills. He has planning skills and he knows how to maneuver in the system. Those are assets. And we find that out because that's what the letters are about. I mean, he could have just said, King, we need to go rebuild the, the city. And the king's like, hey, go for it. And Nehemiah runs off. <laughs> and now he's going from the capital over to where Jerusalem is. And all these people in between are like, who is you? Oh, I'm from the king. Oh, really? You just look like a Jew out here. So he knows the system. He knows he's going to need letters from the king to get through from A to B. He's going to need resources. He's going to need all this timber. And he happens to know that the king does a thing where if, if there's a letter to the guy who controls the forest, he gets all this wood, choice timber to rebuild. And then at different junctures along, you know, when the king asks him, you know, the king's, it's funny, the king's question, when Nehemiah lays out his heart, he's like, how long is this going to take you? And Nehemiah had an answer. 
that was a credible answer. Later, when he's gathering and organizing the people, he's got a plan. And he says it. He goes around the city, and he's, he's alone just with a few people. He hadn't told anybody the things he had planned. When you go through the entire book of Nehemiah, you're going to see that he had a very long and detailed plan, and they executed it with God's help. He knew what to do. He had those planning skills. The skills were an asset. He took those skills, applied them into this fresh new context, and things got done. Now, the tough one. They get to Jerusalem. What are the assets in Jerusalem? In Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier, some would see just broken walls, broken spirit, and vulnerability. Or even, let's say, the whole project gets built and done. What's to keep it from all falling apart all over again? A lot of risk. But he sees an opportunity. He says, not only do we have material that we can build with, the base of the physical structure of the city itself, there are people. There are people there with whom we can rebuild. Next week, when you go through chapter 3 and 4, you will see that he used the people there to take sections of the wall, and those people built it themselves. They defended it themselves. He believed in the people. And again, with the assets of Jerusalem, it was valuable enough of a city that the king was willing to release those resources because they were going to need the timber to fill out what was broken around there. So, then Nehemiah had to activate those assets. You have all this stuff. You have the promises of God, God's presence, and God's will. Now you have Nehemiah's got a few skills, and he's got some connections. And then in Jerusalem, we've got some stuff to work with. Now we have to activate all this. So he brought them together. He shared the vision. He invited them to work with them. He didn't have a negative spirit. Nowhere in the text does it say Nehemiah first told them, them, told them about themselves. You allowed Jerusalem to fall into repair, disrepair. You have not kept up. He didn't do that. It's not in the text. He brought people together. And then he did something very interesting. I call it co-risking. There's probably, a more, there's probably a more common term that we use. I like the precision of the idea that Nehemiah is going to ask them to risk, to rebuild with the presence of a lot of enemies. He is going to risk with them himself. He already asked the king for timber to build his own residence in the city. He moved there for a period of time, and then he says to them, he doesn't say to them, hey, y'all need to rebuild the wall. You can do it. I believe in you. You go build. Whenever I say, hear somebody saying that, I, I, they might be standing there talking to me, but I feel like they're backing away from me. <laughs> they're like, you go do That's good for you. You go do that. He says, come, let us. Let's rebuild it together. He believes in them. He affirms them. There's a plan. He even goes and tells them, how it all came together. It says it in the text. He told them God's favor on him up until that point, and he told them what the king said to him. So he's a transparent leader with a plan. He's vulnerable. He believes enough in the team to treat them like a team. He believes enough in the team to put himself in the same situation that they're in. 
And with that, they move forward. Now, what this means for us, there's a series of questions to ask yourselves. One of them, what has God promised to you that you need to lay hold of as an asset? And to take that promise and to do something with it. The promises are in the Word, God's Word. You may have even had some sort of a confirmation or a detail that you know about yourself specifically. Are you taking action on it? Same for the church. God has made promises to his body, to his local body. What are those promises? How can we take those and build off of those? Second, what are your assets? What are your skills? What are your connections? The funny thing here is that oftentimes we're not aware, half the time we're not even aware of our assets and connections and hookups. You know, we like to think that the rich owner of a business or something, we know all about their assets and what they do, but actually all of us have something and things that are unique. What are our assets? And how can they be connected to what God's doing. What are the church's assets? And I, by that, I don't mean just buildings and things that we traditionally think of as assets. Do you have a good name? Do you have favor in the city? That's a big deal. If you try to go to the city and get things done, or do you have a bad name? You might have a liability. I believe we have a good name here, but you might, you know, check your own behavior. You might be as leaders, we're always like, that person thinks they're an asset? They're actually bringing liabilities. we got to work with them on this. Um, and then, what are the assets of the people that we want to help? We don't often think of a person in need who is broken, who is homeless, who is in prison, who is uneducated, who is coming through the food pantry. We don't often think about them in terms of what their strengths are, what they're bringing. What we see are the needs. And we're like, Oh, they're just messed up. They don't, they don't have this. They don't have this. we got to help them with this. If they don't do this, they're never going to get anywhere. And it's easy to see. They're presenting because of a need. So we need God's lens, what the Scripture says, that every person is fearfully and wonderfully made, that the person that has presented here, this is where they're at, but God doesn't... doesn't doesn't just have a vision. God put it in them. It's to be drawn out, extracted, shaped, something. I love fracking metaphors. You know, fracking didn't really exist a good 20 years ago. Whatever you think about it sort of politically and socially, it's this technology that we had no way to get through the rocks before. We invented stuff. That is we're fearfully and wonderfully made. No matter how difficult something is, how challenging it is, God can do it. He has empowered us. We can actually pull off things that we can't even imagine. And that's where the fracking metaphors help me. I'm like, well, even the atomic bomb to get, you know, you know that we'd never blown up anything that big back in World War II. They had to use a process called implosion, which drives the force inward, even to get the chain reaction going. No one had ever successfully done implosion. So they had to invent things along the way to an, an invention. We can do it because God has created us in this amazing way. Finally, um, 
I know this is uh, a JPEG. I know this is true because of my own life. I came from a really rough background. My mom died when I was six. Father left us before that. We were poor in East LA. We were on welfare. My sister ends up raising us in the upper left is my sister Yolanda. In the right is my older brother who OD'd when I was 15. He had a really rough life in and out of jail. Yolanda raises the three of us. She was 20 when she took custody of us. Next slide. So that's me when I'm eight. My mom had died the year before. We were in a hole. It was rough. I don't recall going to a food pantry, but we, we probably went to something equivalent. I had people around me, my, starting with my sister and others, who said, you know what? There is something inside of this little Mexican kid. There's something there. God has put it in there. We're going to walk alongside. We're going to believe in him. We're going to love him. We're going to pour into him. And years later, years later, I was at the White House advising President Bush four months before 9-11. Now, there's a story to that. I'm a few minutes over. You're going to have to come for part two sometime. We'll do a webinar. <laughs> Finally. And then the fun part. Because of that photo, I met a lot of interesting new people. And one of them hooked me up, and I threw out the first pitch at a Dodgers game. High and inside. Like I've always been throwing them. I didn't throw it like 50 Cent did that time. That was amazing. <laughs> It's happened in my life. I'm so grateful for the people who didn't say, here's a Mexican kid. He ain't never going to be nothing. What's with these Mexicans anyway? They said, you know what? This is a person created in God's image, and God wants to do his miracles in this kid's life today. It wasn't easy. I'm grateful for the people who obeyed the scriptures and worked as a body to love me. And so that's why, one reason I love to be a part of an effort to love others. So, thank you. <laughs>